Hello, and welcome to the JAT chat presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak. I'm coming to you from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and I'll be your host for tonight's event. The purpose of tonight's event is to provide an opportunity for a forum for athletic trainers and other allied healthcare professionals to ask questions and discuss a recent commentary published in the Journal of Athletic Training. Today, we'll be discussing the commentary considerations for athletic trainers, a review of guidance on mild traumatic brain injury among children from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention and the National Athletic Trainers Association. This is a really important commentary that we'll be discussing tonight with one of the authors, Dr. Jana Register Mahalik. Dr. Register Mahalik is an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise and Sports Science and a member of the Matthew Gaelic Gefeller, sorry about that, Sports-Related Traumatic Brain Injury Research Center at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In order to make tonight's event work as smoothly as possible, we ask that you submit your questions in the Facebook Live chat section or as a tweet to at J-A-T underscore N-A-T-A using the hashtag, hashtag J-A-T chat, all one word. At this point, I would like to introduce Dr. Registrar Nahalik. Thank you for taking your time to speak with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to answering questions and talking about uh, management of concussion and mild TBI in kids. So can you give us a little bit of an overview of what went on to creating this commentary in JAT? Absolutely. Um, so the purpose of the commentary was really to provide um, athletic trainers an overview of how we sort of fit into uh, mild traumatic brain injury and concussion management in the larger spectrum of medicine. Um, there were also uh, a combined body of nine specialty commentaries that came out of the guidelines, um, one that was directed at pediatricians, one directed at emergency medicine professionals, and of course, ours. So there were others um, that kind of pulled us all together in this space of management of, of mild TBI, um, because the guidelines are really meant to be a framework. Um, the goal of the guidelines was, was really overall to improve diagnosis and management of mild TBI among kids because prior to this document, there really had been no combined body of evidence that was specific to the pediatric population um, in diagnosis and management of, of mild TBI. So that was kind of the impetus, I think, behind the, the guidelines. Um, and that pediatric MTBI work group that the CDC and a federal task force um, put together um, to publish those guidelines, as well as the corresponding systematic review. Um, and again, the purpose of the commentary was really to sort of help translate how we as athletic trainers fit into that spectrum and then where these guidelines fit in the context of our current position statement. Thank you. Can you give me a little bit of information of how athletic trainers fit into the development of these guidelines? Was there anybody on the panel that was an ATC? Absolutely. So um, there were two ATCs, I believe, on the panel um, that were part of the authorship team if you go and look at um, the guidelines themselves. Um, the other professions that were represented, just to give that spectrum, were of course athletic training, emergency medicine, family medicine, uh, neurology, neuropsychology, public health, um, school health, 
nursing, pediatrics, physical therapy, and sports medicine as a whole. Um, so it was a very sort of wide spectrum of individuals who might be involved in this management with, of course, athletic trainers um, being on that authorship team and being part of the contributory group to the guidelines and also to the systematic review. So for those of our listeners that have got an opportunity to read the, gu to read the guidelines, they'll see that it's a pretty brief commentary. But one of the things that's nice is the extensive tables that you guys came up with. Um, can you kind of talk us through how you decided to present the CDC's guidelines in relation to what's coming out there for athletic trainers? Absolutely. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges that we face as athletic trainers is this really sort of evolving and emerging space around MTBI and concussion. There's numerous guidelines, there's numerous consensus statements, uh, the evidence is emerging very quickly. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was kind of try to summarize the guidelines in relationship to how that fits into our position statement. Um, because our position statement is very specific to our profession and, and quite frankly, in some places, is much more detailed than the guidelines because the guidelines were meant to be a broad representation. Um, but we wanted to try to bridge those together. Um, we often get that question um, just sort of as we're out talking to clinicians, you know, how does the Berlin um, Concussion International Guidelines fit in with our position statement? How do we merge those two if there's a difference in information um, and those types of things? So we wanted to put together a summary that would help do that. And I think the first table, um, table one does that. So it sort of gives an overview of the guidelines and then which one of our recommendations from the 2014 position statement align with those guidelines. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I don't think we as athletic trainers probably looked at the MTBI guidelines and thought that anything was earth shattering. Um, I, I think a lot of us you know, know how to do this well. It's something we've been on the front lines of dealing with for a long time. Um, but, but I think it's a great refresher of how we all work together as part of the sports medicine team. And it may help us also communicate um, with other members of our sports medicine team who might not, not be as um, sort of entangled in the concussion or MTBI world. Um, and knowing how our practices intermingle with those larger guidelines, I think is really important. Thank you. So there were, they came up with six important clinical questions that they said that guided the development. Um, one of the things that I noticed about the guidelines that really came out to me was the emphasis on return to learn. Yes. Um, can you give us a little bit of a brief overview of what the CDC guidelines present with return to learn? Absolutely. And that they provide for us? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think that's been a big focus um, of, of, you know, not only just in athletic training, the folks at, you know, at AT Still University have been doing an outstanding job sort of trying to understand those pieces of the return to learn process. There are states across the country that have, you know, great models and programs that we've all, all been looking to, but I think it's an area that, you know, certainly doesn't have as much direction. Um, there's not really a standardized return to learn process. I think depending on the school system that you work in, um, you know, people may have no knowledge of that even being a process um, that people need to go through. Um, and so I think, you know, when you look at the literature and the problems that have emerged for children, you know, returning to school is one of their biggest issues, whether they be an elementary school patient or a high school student athlete. Um, and so, you know, that was one of the reasons that that was such a huge focus here um, was so that 
you know, there would be some kind of guidance for your general practitioners um, and clinicians to have that this is a really important component of management of traumatic brain injury because it's really the primary thing that children do um, at least for nine months out of the year when they're on a traditional school calendar. Um, so there are some uh, outstanding resources that the CDC has developed. Um, if you, I know we're going to provide that link um, at the end, but even if you just Google CDC mild TBI guidelines return to learn, um, it'll take you to a page where there are um, sort of resources for parents that where they can look and see what that process might look like. Um, and reinforcing that gradual return to learn process um, where you may have to have some adjustments early on before you can return to a full school day, um, involving that full comprehensive team as much as possible in that process. Um, but some really sort of resources that, that provide targeted guidance, um, but in a way that could be shared with, with many individuals that might be involved in their child's return to learn process or if they need to share things with clinicians who maybe aren't as familiar um, those resources are great for that as well. And regarding return to learn, one of our questions from the viewing audience at home is how would you recommend advocating for return to learn in the school environment? And who are the most important stakeholders to engage? That's an outstanding question. Um, one of the things that, that I know that we've done in North Carolina is, you know, there's a big component of healthy students in a lot of state, um, ed, state boards of education or, you know, here in North Carolina, we have the Department of Public Instruction, and one of their big goals is having healthy students. And that has helped a lot in terms of forming traumatic brain injury teams or individuals who may be knowledgeable about this within sort of the higher level of education, uh, but also kind of pushing things down to the school level. Um, so I think one of the ways to advocate is thinking about a healthy student. Um, and I think most schools think about that in a different way. They often don't think about sports and return to learn, um, but it's the way to bring back what we do into the bigger picture in the school system. So that's one of the ways. Um, another person, you know, some people to think about um, in the context of that are, depending on what individuals have available, which I know is very varied in their school setting, um, school counselors can be really helpful in that process and an advocate. Um, if you have school psychologists, um, they also can be a, a huge component, or if you have both of those, certainly pull them in. Um, ourselves as athletic trainers may need to be the center of that team until everyone gets on the same page. Mm -hmm. um, and then educating teachers, we found that to be really helpful uh, because we've even found, you know, and we get this question a lot where maybe there's even a policy within the school, but the teachers aren't aware of that. And so there's a lot of pushback for, for the kids when they return and have these adjustments that need to be made um, because the teachers aren't aware of that context. Um, another person that um, our, our individual that sometimes I'm not sure we always think about, but they have a, a great skill set, our speech and language pathologists. Um, they do quite a bit of work with information processing and, and cognitive integration back into normal activities. Um, and so that may be another person um, to, that could be part of that team. Um, in addition to obviously the family being involved in that process um, and, and um, you know, the, the administration to the point that you, know, you may need that help to form that team. Thank you. I never thought to include a speech pathologist on the team, but it, particularly if you're working with anybody who's in the lower grade levels, they probably have one on staff. Right. Or there may be one every three or four schools. That's another model. So they might not be at one school, but it may be one in a county or one in a school district. Great. Kind of along the same thread, another question came in of 
how can I discuss the mild and the long-term consequences of, con con of uh, concussion with a patient or even a patient's parent in an evidence-based way? So is the question about long-term consequences? So how do you bring up that discussion or if yeah. the parent, okay. The mid-term and the long-term consequences. Um, and they say, particularly given the current and potentially overblown focus on conditions like CTE. Right. Um, I think that's something we're all dealing with, whether we're primary clinicians or our primary researchers. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the messaging in the media has often outpaced the science. Um, are the way that things are things are phrased in the media, um, you know, we know scientifically what that means, but potentially, you know, a person who might not be as familiar with our field may not know exactly what that means. And so that's that's a huge challenge. So I really appreciate that question. Um, I think one of the things that we can do um, is is talk about some of the evidence that shows that concussion is being managed better now than it ever has before. Um, that people are not returning to play on the same day. If you look at studies that have been published in the past four or five years, there's a much greater separation between an injury occurring and when someone is returning to participation. Um, we don't see near as many recurrent concussions, so injuries occurring within the same short period of time or within the same season. So I think there's a lot of things that are moving in the right direction. So that's data that we can share with people in terms of those midterm consequences. Um, I think other pieces of information to share are that some of the things we just don't know, right? And so we do our best to protect um, our student athletes by limiting contacts to the head, by making sure that we're, we're managing concussions with the best evidence that we have possible. Um, but that in a lot of ways, uh, in the big picture, you know, some things are safer now than they've ever been because we have knowledge, we have practices that have never been in place before until now. Um, I think the other thing that we always tell people is, you know, we have to assess what the risk and benefits are, um, and we have to balance that out. Um, and for some families, that risk is too great, and that's understandable, right? Um, but we have to help, help them understand that risk in the context of where their child is, what sport their child plays, um, and, you know, what, what the long-term goals or long-term outcomes might be for that individual. So there's, there's not a great answer other than trying to frame it in the context of the evidence that we have about concussions. Um, and about, you know, the, the decrease in repeat concussions that, you know, we're starting to see that when concussions are managed properly, you're much less likely to get another one, um, that we're working in all the ways that we can to decrease impacts to the head, right, through decreasing contact practices, changing the way that individuals behave while they play, playing by the rules. Um, but, you know, if an individual has too many concussions, if those injuries are closer in proximity to each other, if there is you know, less force causing subsequent injuries, those are kind of red flags that maybe we need to pull back, um, you know, and think about a different decision for that season or maybe for that sport or a lifetime. So in addition, along the line of talking to parents about the disconnect sometimes between what they see in the media and what they might desire versus the science. One of the CDC recommendations revolved around imaging. Yes. Um, and can you touch a little bit about what their recommendation was on imaging? And then in addition, what kind of advancements have occurred with diagnosis and acute management within the last year or two? Yeah. 
Um, so I think, you know, the most important recommendation when you look at all, I think the first four recommendations are all around some kind of imaging, whether that be CT, X-ray, MRI, or PET scans, is that, you know, you should not or do not routinely image patients that are suspected of only having MTBI. Um, now there's PCARN rules and other decision rules that are out there that help determine in a setting the risk of intracranial hemorrhage and should an image be conducted. Um, but as you, um, you know, mentioned, there's a lot of parental insistence that happens in this heightened climate. Um, and so, you know, but again, this review of literature, this body of experts, and I think those of us who are in the field recognize that, you know, that's not a useful tool um, in terms of mild TBI and concussion, because we know that it doesn't pick up on that injury. Um, mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, it gives people a false sense of security. I mean, I think we've all dealt with the patient that said, well, you know, the, the image was clear, so they're fine, right? They don't have a concussion, it's okay. Um, and, and that's not the case. Um, and so I think that's a really important recommendation because now we have a document that we can share with our ED partners, with our community physician partners to really start help spreading that messaging. Um, and I think when sort of the, the sports concussion um, sort of incidents rose, when the state laws were passed, um, there was a correlation with sort of an increase in imaging in the EDs of sport-related injuries um, along that time frame as well um, for those reasons that you just mentioned, sort of this heightened awareness and this fear. So I, I think using this document to help support the idea that there's no reason to routinely image individuals who don't have a risk of intracranial hemorrhage um, is one way that this document could be used in a, in a really positive way. Um, I think the other thing is really using that idea as an educational point. Um, we do a lot of work out in our, our middle schools and in our youth sports in the community. And this is one of the most common misconceptions still uh, today is that, you know, we can image someone and know if they have a concussion or not. And that even though those images are clear, that you can still have a concussion. I, I see a lot of parents in these meetings and educational sessions that, you know, are like, wow, I, di I didn't realize that, right? This is a, so I think that's a really key educational point. And, and this, this, um, these guidelines can help us maybe support helping to push more for, you know, the different types of, of measurement and tools that need to be used with concussion and MTBI. So on that same point, we have another question saying, how would you recommend ATs start dispelling myths about biomarkers? Oh, and goodness. And their ability <laughs> to diagnose um, concussions and concussion recovery. Yes, um, you know, I think one of the best examples, that's one of the best examples in the past couple of years of the media headlines being very different than what the actual study found. Um, you know, there was the study that looked at, the, the biomarker indicated moderate to severe TBI, but the headline said that it was diagnosing concussion, right? And so, you know, we had parents asking us these same questions um, and there's a lot of parental insistence in that space. Um, and the guidelines certainly go in and say biomarkers are research only now, right? We do not have a biomarker that in and of itself at this point in time can tell us if a person has a concussion um, and really clinically if they're recovering. Um, are there some things on the horizon, I think, that used in the context of the addition of a symptom checklist and the context of our clinical evaluation that might be useful in the future? Absolutely. Um, but I think we're a long way away from having something, you know, swabbing someone's cheek on the sideline and being able to say yes or no, thumbs up right there. Um, and so I think helping to use evidence that exists that shows right now we don't know that. Um, 
We don't have that answer um, and that, you know, we need to do these full clinical evaluations um, to make sure that we're making the best decisions. But that's that's a great point, especially with the media really wanting to find that answer quickly and even kind of tweaking headlines to make it sound like we potentially do. So again, it's nice to have a document from the CDC saying biomarkers cannot be used. <laughs> yes, right. And, and even sharing that, I mean, I think we have fellow um, you know, practitioners and clinicians who, again, may not deal with concussions at the same rate that we do, and, and perhaps they may be trying to find information and not looking in the right place. And so this document is a great place to start with a sports medicine team or people in the community um, to, to kind of help bring those more in alignment with what the evidence actually shows for us. So let's continue talking about diagnosis. Um, one of our questions from the viewers is, what areas in diagnosis have changed the most in the last year or two? And um, I would add to that, what does the CDC guidelines add? Yeah, um, so I don't know that the CDC guidelines add anything to what I think we probably knew about diagnostic tools. I think the biggest push in the CDC is using valid and reliable tools. And as a clinician, knowing the tools that you're using um, you know, I think we've all heard the saying that a fool with a tool is still a fool, right? Um, you can have the best tool in the world, but if you don't know how to use it and interpret it, um, you know, it's not providing us with, with much information. Um, and if the tool in and of itself is bad, right, it's not giving us what we need it to give us. Um, and so I think, you know, the CDC's recommendation of using valid and reliable tools is right in line with our position statement, which clearly states um, those things. Um, so I don't know that it adds a lot other to reinforce the importance of using valid and reliable tools and specific to the symptom checklist, age appropriate tools, right? Because, um, you know, when we use the regular 22 item checklist within a seven year old, you know, they don't understand those words. They don't understand the ratings, right? Um, and so the child scat actually has a different set of symptoms. Um, but to be fair, though, that, that symptom, that sort of child list hasn't been as well validated as the 22 item list has either. Um, but it's more kid friendly, right? So I think that's maybe what it adds is really reinforcing the age appropriateness and validity. In terms of new developments, um, you know, the way that we evaluate a concussion, um, you know, that multimodal approach, I don't think has changed that much, but I think the addition or the inclusion of potential visual vestibular screening measures is probably the, the newest addition um, to that, that gives us another tool in our toolbox. Um, but as we've always said, none of those supersede another. Just because you have a clear visual vestibular exam, if you still have neurocognitive deficits or still have symptoms, um, you know, that's still an indicator that something in that puzzle is not quite right. Um, so I would say that that's probably the biggest addition. Um, I think it, give a, it gives us another opportunity and another tool uh, to be clinicians. Um, you know, I know the VOMS, for instance, you know, you ask them to rate symptoms, and that's actually how you know, they've done a lot of the scoring with it, but I find the most valuable part of any of the visual vestibular measures is actually watching the patient. Um, you mm -hmm. can't fake that you can't, you're getting dizzy and can't be stable after you do a, a visual motor sensitivity test from the bombs, right? So um, I think it just adds another tool and maybe a more objective way in that process to, to think about our multimodal assessment. But I'd say that's probably the biggest addition that may be the most common um, over the past five years. Going back to the graded symptom checklist and symptom reporting, we've got a question of what suggestions do you have for improving the accuracy of symptom reporting among young children? Oh, goodness, yes. 
for sure. That is a that is a hard question. I have a seven year old, so I I um you know I so identify with that personally and and professionally. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's challenging our vocabulary, right, and and them understanding what we're asking. So that's one issue. Um, so making sure that the vocabulary that we're using or the terms that we're using um, are something that they are able to identify with um, and that are age appropriate. Um, I think the other hard part, and, and this is not really answering that question, but I think is along that same vein, is you know, kids commonly complain of some of these symptoms, you know, a headache, a stomach ache, um, I'm tired, you know, th those kinds of things over the course of a school week. So teasing that out from, you know, either them trying to get out of going to school or either some other things that may be contributing to that, perhaps at the end of a school day, I think is also a challenge. So not just the accuracy, but teasing out where the source of, of those symptoms may be, I think can also be a challenge. But I think one of the key things is trying to find um, terms of vocabulary that they can can most identify with um, so that they are able to explain the way that that they feel. So again, in this early childhood population, should we be using symptoms as the primary indicator of recovery? Right. You know, and I think that's a challenge for any age group because again, it's it's we need it because it's a patient reported outcome, right? They're telling us how they feel, um, and we certainly need those measures because that's a measure of their perceived function and how they feel. Um, but again, it's also subjective in a lot of ways. And when you get in older individuals, they're often not telling the truth potentially because they want to return to play or they want to return to school. Um, and so I think, you know, trying to find objective measures is on all of our agenda, I think as clinicians and as researchers. I think that's where some of these ves visual vestibular measures may be helpful. Um, other more objective balance measures um, may be helpful. Um, I don't think we're there yet, right, from trying to find the most objective way, but any way that we can include something that is more objective in that process to give us a, another piece of that puzzle, I think is really important, um, especially when we're just, our clinical gut is telling us something's not right about a symptom report or a, the way they're talking about things. You know, making sure that we have those other tools in our toolbox are, are really important. Um, and and it's, it's really difficult to rely only on symptoms but I know in some clinical settings, that may be the only tool that, you know, people have available. So again, making sure that we're using the right terms and that we're actually conducting a clinical interview more than just saying, check these boxes, right? That detailed clinical interview is, is really important in the overall, but certainly when we don't have any other tools to help us make a decision. So another question regarding recovery is, What's the typical timeline for recovery? And does it vary significantly between children and adults? So that's, that's a great question. Um, so adolescents um, typically take longer to recover than younger individuals and individuals who are older than them. So the statement that everyone who's younger takes longer to recover than everyone who's older is not necessarily true. Um, mm -hmm. a, a large network in Canada conducted a really big study and looked at younger kids and adolescents um, and actually found that those adolescents were, were the age group that had that slowed recovery. So certainly when you look at high school compared to college, you see a slowed um, recovery timeframe. On average, most people don't have symptoms at, at 10 to 14 days, um, but that doesn't mean they're fully recovered, right? There's a lot of other things that, that could be in that process. So yes, there is a varied timeframe with adolescents often taking a longer time to recover. 
Um, I don't think there's a good answer for why. Um, a lot of development is happening at that age. There's a lot of other psychosocial considerations. Um, there's a lot of brain, you know, maturation that's occurring um, during that time frame. So there's probably physiological as well as psychosocial pieces of that puzzle. Um, but yes, there, there are some differences. Um, we typically see college athletes recover within seven to 10 days still. You see that in the adult population. But again, 20% of people don't recover in a typical time frame, right? And that's still a lot of people. Um, so we want to make sure that we're thinking about both sides of that coin. And again, with comparison adults to children, um, differences in acute management. Right. Um, you know, I think, you know, the data would suggest that we should, would, be more conservative, right? Because we know that as a whole, adolescents are gonna take longer to recover. Um, also, they may not be able to advocate for themselves in the same way, right? They're considered a vulnerable population um, because they're, they're, they're not adults. Um, they can't make decisions for themselves. Um, and so, you know, there's typically a more conservative framework um, around that. Um, you even see that in legislation, right? Because most of our state laws say if you're suspected of having a concussion, in high school or middle school, you're not allowed to return the same day. Or in North Carolina, our law reads, I think, if you exhibit signs and symptoms consistent with that of concussion, you don't return the same day. Um, whereas at the college and professional level, that language says if you are diagnosed with a concussion, you do not return to play the same day, which is two very different things. Um, and so I think, you know, even that framework is set up to be more conservative initially um, until we sort of figure out what's going on with those individuals. Let's talk a little bit about um, culture right now. Oh, sure. And, um, what, are there any coaches, practices, or educational resources that could be helpful in creating better reporting culture and reducing the risk of concussions? Absolutely. Um, so I, I think there's a couple of good resources out there. It's a matter of people using those resources and how do we have coaches be engaged to want to be part of that process. Mm -hmm. Some of that is policy, right? A school system or a high school athletic association requiring that coaches participate in, in that education. So the National Federation of, of State High School Associations has a course that is also in line with the CDC's coaches training. Um, that's a great resource. Um, the CDC also has resources for coaches. Um, and some of those resources can even be um, sort of watermarked with your school or your, um, your clinic or, or your organization so that you could brand and sort of be able to integrate that into what you're doing, which might make it more appealing that it's part of that culture and part of those things. So there are some great online resources that, that folks can be directed to, as I just mentioned. Um, part of it can also, you know, be, you know, at the beginning of the year when people are meeting, can you integrate it into something that they already are doing? We found that to be helpful. Um, anytime you have to ask somebody to come back and do something extra, they, they don't like you very much, right? So if there's a way for us to find ways to integrate that um, into things that they're already doing um, in an interesting way, we found that to be helpful. Um, but I'm happy to share resources, you know, or where those resources are from the CDC and some of the resources that we've used um, if we continue the conversation offline. But I think you raise a great point of, you know, how do we change um, how do we go about continuing to change that culture um, at that coach and sort of uh, organizational level? And another question came in, if there's any evidence to support preseason parent education as being able to increase reporting and change the culture. Do you know of anything? 
So I think there's a growing body of evidence um, to show that parents are really important um, in that process. So we just had a study actually published in the Journal of Athletic Training last year that found that, you know, as parents' knowledge and attitudes about concussion increased or were more positive, their kids also were, right? So parents who had worse attitudes, their kids' knowledge and attitudes were worse, right? So I think that's, you know, there's evidence uh, of that space. Um, Emily Croesus and her colleagues um, at, at the University of Washington have also done a lot of work in that space, really connecting this parent-child dyad relationship. Um, and I, I think there is a growing body of evidence showing that that is certainly a way that we can help the overall um, concussion culture is really getting parents engaged and helping them make the right decisions. Now, are there still parents that are very challenging to work with even in that process? Or do I go to parent meetings um, even in the presence of this data that shows that, you know, how much parents matter where they're say they're tired of hearing this or they don't need to worry about this because their kid plays a certain sport. Certainly those things still exist. Um, but I think there is continuing to be a growing body of evidence that reaching the parents does make a difference in what happens to the kids. And just a few more questions for you. Is baseline testing still recommended for children in contact that's a, sports? That's a great question. So it, de it depends on the age, right? Because a lot of the tests don't have, um, aren't valid down past certain ages, right? Um, and I, I know at one point there were some pediatric tests that were being pushed out, but they're not widespread. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's where the challenge is, is that some kids are too young um, to really have a valid baseline on many of these tests. Now, certainly the SCAT-5 has a child version that we could, you know, use as a baseline, um, you know, and if people have the means and capability, um, and, and that's sort of what our position statement says, you should, you should do that. Um, but if you don't, more resources probably better placed in putting in a really good post-injury protocol and making sure that the right parameters are being followed post-injury and using that preseason time as an education time and setting families and parents up with what do you do if your child has a concussion? Where do you go? Um, you know, what are the steps that you take? Um, because those are the questions down at the youth level that we get all the time. Um, I didn't know what to do. I don't know who to go to. Um, I didn't know the steps that I should take. Um, and so that's a really important component of that, that preseason baseline period is establishing the, that protocol and then making sure that there's a good post-injury plan in place. Thank you. So what's your take-home message from the CDC commentary? I think there's kind of five um, sort of five points, um, and you'll see this on the CDC's website, um, but I, I think this, this really does sort of summarize the commentary and the guidelines overall is, you know, do not routinely recommend imaging for people with MTDI. Use validated and age-appropriate uh, symptom scales, and I would add to that any tool that you're using um, to, to diagnose and assess concussion and MTDI. Um, make sure that you're thinking about risk factors for a prolonged recovery. So individuals with a high increased symptom burden um, are individuals that you want to keep an eye out. That's a, a growing body of evidence shows that to be the most common factor in who's going to take a long time to recover. Um, but you want to make sure you're thinking about medical history and presentation um, and kind of be able to educate the patient and their family, but also keep in the back of your mind as a clinician who might have a prolonged recovery. 
um, provide our patients with instructions on return to activity that's customized to their symptoms. So this idea of saying do nothing for five days, don't get on your phone, don't look at the TV, don't go to school, um, you know, evidence shows that's not what we should do, that we should have that initial couple of days, 24 to 48 hours of some period of rest. But after that, if things aren't bothering them, it's okay for them to engage in, in those activities. So making sure that we're customizing our plan based on what they're reporting and can do, not just on this idea that you just do nothing until your, your symptoms resolve. And then lastly, you know, counseling our patients to return to activities of daily living after that couple of days of rest, um, because evidence is really showing that strict rest um, especially over a window past that two or three days, is really not beneficial and in fact can be detrimental. Um, so helping them get back to normal activities of daily living and integrating back into life um, can, can really improve their overall well-being. So I think those five points, you know, really summarize the guidelines. Um, I think w the key take home is that, you know, a lot of this really integrates perfectly with our position statement. Um, so make sure we know what that says and how to integrate that. And then we can use this again, as we've talked about many times this evening, um, to educate our, our partners and practitioners and say, hey, here's a statement that, that kind of helps support some of the things that we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And one last question for you. What research avenues are you most excited about seeing coming in, out in the near future to influence clinical practice regarding sports-related concussions? Absolutely no doubt, treatment and rehabilitation um, of concussion. I, you know, this past month, um, Dr. Letty and his group published one of the first studies of acute um, exertion after an injury. On average, four days, those patients were getting uh, sub-symptom threshold aerobic exercise, and that group improved significantly over the group who weren't exercising in that acute phase under that protocol. Um, you know, and there's numerous studies. We have a large multi-site trial that we're conducting over three countries looking at early activity. Um, and I think it's just really exciting because as athletic trainers, we do not like to sit on our hands. We want to know what to do from the time someone's injured all the way through that process. And I think we are getting there. Um, and so I, I could talk all day about that, but absolutely no doubt that that is the thing I'm most excited about because it is going to, I think, drastically improve our patients' outcomes and really drastically improve and change the way that we currently practice, especially within that first week after someone has a concussion. Great, so not biomarkers, huh? Not biomarkers, <laughs> but that might be for some people. I mean, if we had a gold standard of diagnosis, that would make us all happy also, but I'm very excited about um, the, the treatment and rehabilitation avenues that I think we have a growing body of evidence um, that will change our clinical practice for sure. That's the wonderful thing about research. All avenues are open. That's right. Yeah. So thank you so much, Jana. I really appreciate you taking your time to talk with us today and helping us translate the research coming out of the JAT pages into people's clinical practice. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you for the opportunity. And I'm happy to answer questions or feel free to email me or reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook if, if you have any questions or want to chat more. And anybody who's listening and watching, if y'all want to continue the conversation, please do so both on Twitter and on Facebook. Thank y'all so much. Have a good evening. Thank you.